Welcome to the Resilience Breakthrough Podcast. This is Christian Moore. And I'm Dave Biesinger. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk to somebody who has a very powerful story of personal resilience and who, as an educator, really understands uh, the current situation and some of the challenges that we face during COVID. Like you were saying, his personal yeah. life is resilience and what he's done in the education system to increase the teacher's resilience, to increase students' resilience is is one of my greatest um, examples. He's been um, a professional mentor to me over the years, and I'm just excited to get him on here and, and have everybody hear him, man. He's yeah. he's the real deal. And just in talking earlier a little bit, I think one of the things I'm picking up, two things that I'm real impressed with so far, he really understands the power of building that relationship, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that. And he's mentioned a couple times the hero's journey. And I'm a yeah. bit of a, I'm a bit of a storytelling uh, nerd, if you will, and and so the fact that he's familiar with Joseph Campbell's work and the hero's journey, I'm super excited. Like, Absolutely. I mean, he, he himself he has is, been on the yes. hero. He is the hero's say, journey. He is the hero. <laughs> like, he, but, yes. but, but what I like about it, I appreciate you bring up the hero's journey, Dave, because early is somebody who has, um, again, been on that hero's journey himself, but he really, and he'll, he'll, I'm sure he'll talk about it, he helps the students understand how they can take their pain, their opposition, their suffering, and create a productive outcome with that. And that, that's something, you know, yeah. part of the resilience breakthrough. And, and he's somebody who um, has taken, you know, the theory of that, but put it in real world. Yeah. You know, delivery of that. So. Well, I love it. It kind of goes with a theme that we have so far in these podcasts. And it's like, you know, every person can become the hero of their own story right? If they just believe something positive about themselves and they feel empowered to craft that story. And so without further ado, let's just get him on here. Uh, welcome to the show, Early King. Thanks for having me. What are the schools that you're principal of right now? What's that organization called? It's called the Youth Connection Charter School. Youth Connection Charter School. On the Charter west side school. of Chicago. Mm -hmm. How many students are you interacting with on a daily basis? Um, on a daily basis, 220 students. That's a lot of students, man. How do you remember all their names? Yeah. Well, you know, at the beginning of the school year, I have, you know, one-on-ones with all my students for at least five to 10 minutes just to get to know them. And it's usually shocking when they first come in because they have to sign up to meet the principal. They're like wide-eyed, like, what, what's going on? What did I do? Because it's not something they're normally used to, you know, having that one-on-one -on -one just to get to know them. And what's really amazing, I, I jot down notes once they leave my office and when I see them in class, and I, you know, say, hey, Anita, how's your baby, you know, you know, John? You know, she'll look up at me and like, how do you remember that, you know? Um, so I, I do a lot of, you know, almost like CRM, gathering information to actually expedite their re relationship building process with them. They know that somebody really care. So over time, they start to open up and you start to, you know, broaden your relationship with all your students. And they know you, you're somebody they can go to. So it's weird. They actually initiated a lot of the contact with me because it is an open door policy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, um, you know, your journey in becoming an educator and, and you know, now an administrator is an unbelievable journey. And, you know, you look at statistically for you to be where you are. And this is something, you know, as a social worker, I've, I study, you know, I spent my life studying, you know, how does someone overcome tremendous challenges and, and then convert it into what you've done serving, you know, families and children. 
Um, I would like to start out by having you share a little bit of um, my understanding. You grew up there in Chicago, and take us back to mm -hmm. um, the 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 beginnings of, of of your life a little bit, and where you're comfortable. With this, I'd love to hear yeah. your journey a little bit. Yeah, like let's let's play the flashback yeah. music, like. Diddly, diddly, diddly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. It's called Inglewood. And, and to this day, it's still one of the most challenging areas in Chicago as far as, um, you know, gangs and drugs and crimes that's committed in the area. I think it has the highest rate of murders in Chicago, uh, along with the West Side, which is the area I work with, you know, the, the youth. Um, pretty tough growing up, you know, you know, saying that I grew up uh, as a kid that was impoverished, you know, exposed to lead in the house that caused me to stutter and, you know, have, you know, some physical deformities and drooling uh, as a kid. And, you know, growing up with families that game bang and, you know, start gangs in the area. I mean, that that was really hard to, you know, just keep cleaning that, that kind of atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, all the people that I have, you know, grown up with, um, I probably have two friends that's still alive. Everyone else is probably dead or in jail. Um, and, you know, thank God I had, you know, I talk about a hero's journey, a, a hero at fourth grade that, um, you know, kind of made me like education. <laughs> I, I didn't like education because the teachers I had before that, they denigrated me in, in the classroom because they thought I had a, a learning disorder. They thought I had a speech impediment. Um, but it was all due to the lead that I was exposed to, which nearly killed me. So, wow. you know, it's really rough, you know, growing up seeing family members and, and families, you know, dying left and right, selling drugs. That's all you're around. I mean, <laughs> my grandma, I told Kristen, my grandmother sold drugs until her, her dying day, 87. She, she was 87 years old and she still sold, you know, marijuana. So this is what I grew up in, you know, a family side that started against the disciple and the other side was Blackstone Rangers, which my brother ran. It was just all around me. So I don't know how I'm here, but I, you know, thank, thank God that I'm here. And well, I think I attribute a lot of that to my fourth grade teacher. You know, when you when you mentioned the lead, I, I couldn't help but think of Freddie Gray, you know, and, and how tragic that story was. You know, that's from a few years back. But, um, you know, to, ha to have somebody who has lead poisoning and then to have, you know, uh, uh, negative behavior attributed to them and then to, to, to penalize them for something that they never chose to be exposed to. That's 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 an, that's that's intense. And so. What, what, uh, well, first of all, what, what did that look like for you? And have you, have you had any long, I mean, is it okay to ask this? Like, do you had any long-term effects from that? You know, I, I think usually I have PDs up front with the team over the summer and we talk about the hero's journey and usually I lead the conversation. I expose my hand just to kind of lead and be that, that I, you know, want people to be and say, I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not willing to do. And usually I choke up, you know, talking about that because I think cellularly I still feel that, you know, that teacher that I had in first grade really shouldn't have, you know, you know, beat, I mean, she actually beat us and put us in these different groups based on our skill level, oh my beat gosh. us in front of everyone and students laughing, you know, and <laughs> it was weird. I had her first grade and, and, you know, she got promoted and she was my, also my second grade teacher. So I had this lady for two years, um, basically, you know, beating us in front of everyone and, and denigrating us. Um, 
in our reading group. So, yeah, you know, most definitely I'm over it. But, you know, I think what it has done for me, it, it actually motivated me to be a champion for students. Um, you know, Rita Pearson said every student need a champion. And I think if, you know, Miss Dame, my fourth grade teacher, didn't come into my life, I would be one of my friends that's dead. I would be one of my friends that's incarcerated because education is the, the, the way out. That's the only way out. And I'm the only one in my community that got a college degree other than my sister, who's a year older than me. Hey, a quick question for you. And that, I mean, I love it, man. That, that one person, no doubt, that, that's the X factor. We know that it's that relational resilience that, that really makes things happen. But I got to ask you a question. Um, I get this a lot. A lot of educators ask me this. You know, you, you look at, you know, when you were saying you're in high school, you're in the you know, top, you know, four students there in your high school. But, you know, a few minutes ago you mentioned, you know, your grandmother was a drug dealer. You're, you're dealing with gang stuff in your neighborhood. What enabled mm -hmm. you with what was going on at home, in the streets, in the community, for you to be able to focus on education, focus on academics. Talk a little bit about you know, what you had to battle through to do that, the reality of that, because I, I know a lot of educators who have students in that situation, they're racking their brains figuring out how do we help mm -hmm. kids in that situation. What, what can you share around that? Well, I, I, I can't take credit for it. Uh, most definitely, I have to give it up to my mom. Okay. Uh, my mom was smart enough. I mean, her, it was her mom that sold drugs and her sibs uh, that, you know, started the Gangsta Disciples and, you know, selling drugs as well. So my mom was really, you know, strategic. She knew that one day I wanted to study. I wanted to study, you know, some kind of martial art. And it just so happened when I graduated from eighth grade, she put me in Taekwondo. And at the time, it was very expensive, $75 a month, and she had to pay for the first three months in advance. Um, and I remember the first day I went there, it was so tough. I mean, I had my nose actually broken the first day. And I wanted to quit. My mom's day. like, you will not quit until you endure the first three months. Wow. I put the money up. You're going to go for the first three months. So I'm, I'm glad she's seen, you know, she, she pushed me to go through it. And it was very rigorous, and I think, you know, what we call ADL, a discipline lifestyle, it was just that. Studies were very important. So we were put around a positive peer culture. You know, most of us wanted to be doctors and lawyers. You know, we all had the same kind of attitude as uh, far as, you know, the work that we had to do inside the school and the work that we had to do as far as academically outside of the, you know, the, the, the dojo. So, um so was and your... so that that is that that being around those type of people, and one my mom figured out my passion, what I really wanted to do, <laughs> and she made me stick to it to break through it, right? And then two, I, I found this group of people that resonated with me and you know held me to a standard. Back in the community, they see me come home with my uniform on, um, and you know they felt like you know this kid could be. The one. He can be the one that actually get out the community. So since my brother was the prince of Blackstone, like the Blackstone Rangers, you know, they, they back off me. They didn't try to, you know, make me join 
but it doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, I was still dodging bullets, um, you know, coming back home from practice, coming back home from, you know, working. Later on, I worked for McDonald's in practice, um, you know, two hours before I started work and worked to like 12 o'clock at night and then, you know, do it all over again. But, you know, one time coming back home from McDonald's, getting caught in the crossfire, I still have a scar on my, my, my chest from being, you know, gazed by a bullet. So, you know, you still face that type of stuff. You, you still face the peer pressure in the neighborhood. But ultimately, what was it for me, my time was structured. You know, from the time I got up, I had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, be at school at 7 o'clock, you know, for zero period gym. After that, I went to Taekwondo practice. After that, I went to McDonald's. And just it was a cycle, just, you know, occupying my, my time and staying busy and being around the right folks. You know, one thing interesting about you, I got to say, knowing you from a personal standpoint a little bit, you're one of the most self-disciplined people I've ever met. I wish if, if it, and we maybe we'll have to post a picture later, you are in perfect physical condition, man. You are ripped, strong, you exercise, you take care of yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and I, I, I've observed that about you over the years, and it's, it's a tremendous example. But I think, you know, you're going back, sharing the story about, you know, the, the lead paint issue and stuff. And I, I, I think maybe, maybe you use that a little bit, that difficulty growing up and, and exposure there to that, um, really difficult situation. You, you really have, um, taking care of yourself physically. And I, I think right now during COVID and what a lot of people are going through, having that balance is so powerful. You're, you're a great example of that. Yeah, I you know just just I just have a kind of a follow up question. So it sounds like the the discipline of the people in the dojo was something special. That, that was really kind of a special, different peer group. Is that am I am, am I framing that correctly? Yeah, you know it's weird. I always go back to the adult that actually led that group. Right, my my instructor. He he was a Korean guy. Um, and he was very tough. I mean, he studied multiple arts. I mean, Taekwondo was the major one. Hapkido, hop not Aikido, Hapkido was the one. And he studied um, some kind of Japanese art, even though he was, you know, Korean. Um, but I think he was so tough on us, you know, and you have, to, you have to earn your stripes when you're there. So I was the one that loved connected to adults because adults always, uh, you know, guided me on the side, you know, being my teachers uh, from fourth grade all the way up uh, to, you know, ninth grade, they were the guy on the side. And that was the only positive adult outlet I had. I had the teachers uh, and then I had my Taekwondo instructor that really provided some guidance. Everything else came from being around a tough, pure environment. So you almost competed. You wanted to actually not be the worst. You wanted to be one of the top people so you can actually lead in the class. And I mean, probably the first, you know, six, seven months, I was one of the top leaders of the class because I really bought into it. Um, so I think that's what it was, the pure culture. We call it PPC, positive peer culture. Um, they did really have an influence on me. Um, I'm always have been the one that don't jump on the bandwagon. I, after I see the people running east, I'm going to run west. You know, try to do something different from everyone else because you'll likely get the same results if you do. It sounds like what you're trying to do right now is to be that educator who can help those kids feel a sense of connection to a, a, an adult 
who who believes in them and who has their back and who has their best interest at heart. Is that, I, I mean, I, you know, what are you doing besides, I mean, it almost sounds like you have like a CRM system. It's funny, you know, when you said that earlier, I, I thought, oh man, CRM, that's customer relationship management system. I was like, it's almost like you're looking <laughs> at the student like they're the customer. Yeah. Well, they are the, the people that we're serving and, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to exhaust everything, all resources, all best practices that we can come across to actually give them a fighting chance and you know, provide equity and education for them. Uh, you know, because with the limited resources, some of the things that you get in the north side schools or the suburban schools, you're not going to get on the west side and on the south side of Chicago. So you have to be really strategic how you use resources. Job one always is to build a relationship with the students because if you can't reach them, you can't teach them. I know, I think, you know, that's a a phrase that we hear all the time in education, Uh, but it's really true. You know, they're not going to let you know what's going on because the facade of, you know, you don't tell about what's going on at home. But when you start to build a relationship, with your students, I mean, they will open up and actually share almost anything with you. And that gives you opportunity to provide the, the, uh, the proper resources to help them get through whatever it is they're going through. So the research shows that if you have two or more caring adults, you know, that's actually trying to actively engage students, they're more likely to engage in the process that we call education. And usually the students go from one class to another and, you know, they kind of get caught up in this just traditional system, this archaic system. And sometimes you just have to stop and really, you know, do things different. So we don't have this the traditional standard deliver type of school. We do a lot of project-based learning, which is connected to, a real life, you know, issues that's going on in the community. And we look at competencies, you know, it presupposes that students come in already with a set of skills and we want to maximize those skills and actually help them develop, you know, other skills that they venture, that they want to develop, not what we say they should develop, but what they want to develop, develop in order to be successful in life. So when that happens, you know, you, you start to get buy-in from the students. You start to get students hanging out at the end of the day and participating in after-school programs. It's just a beautiful thing to watch um, when you know that things are working well as far as, you know, building a sense of community with the students, building that sense of relationship with the students, you can see it, you can feel it <laughs> when it happens and so it's magical. When you're talking, when you're talking about project-based learning, I know, I mean, obviously that, that model appeals to me a lot because I, I'm a very curious person and I feel like I learn by doing, um, but it, it seems like it would be a real challenge to take kids who maybe have been bounced around in various aspects of the system and say, hey, we're not, not only are we not going to try to fit you into a box, but we're going to pull the train tracks off and we're going to kind of open this whole thing up. Like, how do you keep them engaged? How do you prevent them from just falling through the cracks? Like, how do you actually, it seems like, you know, you're almost making it more <laughs> open, like a little less defined yeah. in some ways. How does that work? Well, it's, it's weird. It's just like you said, they're so conditioned to the traditional way of learning, right? So, one, a lot of things shock them. When they are doing the one-on-ones with me, that is totally different. So right through the door, they're like, oh, this guy's taking time out. He's the head of school. He's the principal. He's taking time out to meet up with me. And not me, just everyone. He's taking that time out. And then, two, you know, when they see that, 
you know, we're not, you know, diving right into humanities. We're not diving right into civics and, you know, anatomy. They, they like, hold on. Shouldn't we be doing this? I'm trying to graduate. And hold on. You, you, you're going to get credit, you know, and we show them how they're going to get credit for the things they're learning. Um, because we tell them, you know, so it's about framing it up front for the students. We have a vested interest in getting to know you and actually having you get to know your peers before we even start anything. But guess what? We're going to give you credit for all your subject areas, you know? So I think that when they hear you're going to get credit, because at the end of the day, let's be frank, they just want to know that they're going to graduate. Right. That's really what they want to know. But we try to teach them it's more important that you, you know, build up your self-advocacy, that you actually learn how to network and collaborate with others before you even think about leaving the school. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we do. They have to collaborate with one another um, in order to do their projects. And at the end of the day, do you feel like they are getting, uh, you know, the coverage of the of the subjects that they need to? Like you mentioned civics or, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, even though you're saying, hold on, we're not going to just dive into these subjects. We're going to focus on self-efficacy and we're going to focus on process and relationship real quick. I mean, are you are you still teaching them as exhaustively about civics as, you know, y- you should be? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, we, can, we can do that in meaningful ways. And um, what I love, we don't just stay on site. We, we take them out in the communities and show how things are connected. We have hi- historical areas from the civil rights that our civics teacher go out into the community and actually tie into what we're teaching them um, just to see the students, you know, one, get away and engage in the process. And it's almost like Erin Guerrero when she took the students away from the school into the um, the Holocaust Museum, yep. the students really start to get into it because they always like something totally different from just the whole stand and deliver. So part of our onboarding process is actually getting the students and have these disoriented experiences away from the school that take them out the community, that take them out and see, you know, what's going on in the suburban schools, seeing what's going on, um, you know, as far as the historical areas of Chicago, how that came about and look at it up until this point. So, again, we, we try to do something that's relevant to them. So the learning actually, you know, it, it goes deeper with them. It resonates more with them because it's something that they can actually understand. Yeah, that, that so, yeah, I think yeah. it's really effective because, you know, just like one of the R's and why I try, you know, relevancy, yeah. uh, that really, you know, helps in the learning process. Now, I appreciate bringing that up earlier. I mean, I've been screaming relevancy for the last 20 years, and, and these kids knowing the why, the why creates the motivation for, for so many of these students. And I you know, I appreciate you bringing up the three R's. You're literally practicing the three R's. You're putting the relationship first. Then we've got to make sure it's relevant. They know the why in their own lives. And then the third R is resilient. So I appreciate you um, practicing the um, three R's of why try. Um, I, I very much hey, appreciate it. Hey, learn from the best. Hey, learn hey, from the best. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, right now, um, a lot of teachers are, you know, dealing with COVID. We, you know, we know school's going to go back in some type of a blended approach. And I know talking to you the other day, you, you were sharing a little bit um, how, how you're dealing with COVID. Um, tell us about 
um, what you're going to do to kind of start where the students are and help them be able to thrive. I know some of your students, you know, they have to work. They're helping their families. They're dealing with, you know, tremendous crises in their lives. Um, I guess share a little bit of the education flexibility you're working on. Yeah, you know, it's really amazing to me because my first experience as a high school principal uh, back in 2009 I started this dropout recovery program in Malcolm X College, and it was like a 60-40 model. So 60% of the time was face-to-face, 40% of the time was off-site. They had to do two-plus hours off-site uh, with remote learning. And at the time, it was a pilot with CPS and, at the time, the Youth Connection Charter School. So my company was K-12. I was with K-12, Inc., CPS, Forest YCCS, which is Youth Connection Charter School, to actually try out this model back in, you know, 2008, 2009. And just so happened I was the principal of that school. And no one thought it would work. You know, these like, you know, at-risk kids and like that, that computer stuff is not going to work. Um, and no one really wanted it to work. They wanted the traditional way of learning. And through that, we had a lot of, you know, lessons learned and, and pain points that we had to go through. But at the end of the day, I mean, we were one of the highest um, uh, rated schools, you know, under the YCCS charter, which at the time we had 23 schools. And my school at the time was either one or two. I don't remember. It's been so long. far as, you know, pass rates, uh, engagement, attendance. Uh, and graduation rates. We had the highest uh, growth in, in, in math and, and reading. We had the highest, like three plus years growth. And they didn't believe that it would work. So me having that experience working with K-12 over the last nine, eight, eight, nine years really helped us out, you know, from this standpoint that we are in right now. The students are actually given some virtual classes if they have to work from the home front or work at, at, at some place outside to actually take care of the home front, I should say. We give them virtual classes already, and we have teachers that support them virtually. And we have students on site that's actually doing face-to-face in some virtual classes. So they need that flexibility as well because they may be, you know, close to finishing, and they may, uh, you know, want a whole schedule of being there from 8.30 to, say, 3.30. And we give them just what they need, and if they can, you know, have the skills to take a virtual class with the support, uh, from one of the teachers, we give them that. So we're already prepared to go into this this uh, remote learning type setting. So I'm kind of, you know, me, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I had that experience to share with my team because even going back to YCCS, they really didn't have the gist of, you know, doing the blended environment. I think the thing that we struggle right now because – uh, we didn't have equipment in place like, you know, laptops and hotspots. Uh, some of our students are homeless. We did not plan for that. We did not plan for that. So I think moving into the next year, you know, as far as our wraparound services and housing and making sure that the students have the proper resources uh, needed to actually, you know, do their schoolwork. I think that's the stuff that we're fo- forced to like think about and actually budget for next year. And and what the, does that look like? And how do we make sure that all students have uh, accessibility to learning? How are you um, and right that? now, I, I can just say right now, um, since students were shocked in the beginning of March, they totally disconnected, and it's really hard to re-engage those students, even though we have gone out with masks and gloves to the homes. It's still hard to get them back on board because 
um, you know, they're out in the streets and we can never catch them. Yeah. So, and that's, that's the unfortunate part about this whole thing because the education around COVID, uh, our students feel like, you know, it's not real. They don't trust the government. So a lot of the students are getting sick with their families. So I think the education around what this thing is is something that we're building into our curriculum right now to really onboard that in the beginning and show how this is really real. I had a few people in my family pass away just recently, yesterday, my uncle. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. But he was one of those people. Um, he's old school. He's like, oh, this is just, you know, about money. They trying to, you know, you know, make money off the people. And he fell prey to it and he passed away yesterday. So, oh, man. you know, the, the, the distrust that we have in the community, I think that's one thing that we're facing right now, even talking about the plans when they come back into the school environment. Um, how do you, how are you going to handle that, really? Like, how, how, what are your plans right now for reengaging those students who you've lost touch with? Well, we, we have a, a community group called a Knock Around Midnight. So that's a wraparound uh, partner, one of our community partners that we have. They actually have boots on the ground going out to the homes in the community. And these are actually people from the west side. They know the ins and outs of the area. And nine times out of ten, they know the students that we assign them to. So they're out in the community at least um, um, four times a week trying to get to students that we cannot reach. And up until this point, we had like a 25% success rate. Um, But we have another maybe... Uh, you know, I would say about 20% of the students we can't get in contact with. Um, so that number was higher last month. Uh, Knock Around Midnight has helped us out tremendously this, this year with this thing that's going on. So what do you think is so effective about the Knock Around Midnight program? Is it that people know who the students are? They've got a picture of them. They, you know, they're already familiar. They're a trusted face. Like, what is it? I, I think they... They know that, you know, the people that's in the community, they are not afraid. So if you can go into an environment that you're so familiar with, I mean, usually students are what they, they would actually engage with you. If you go into a community, people say that you're scared. Um, they would actually, you know, move away from you. Um, unless they, you know, one of the students that actually is connected to gangs or drugs, most definitely they would try to engage you. But if they know that you have some street background, that you're from the area, that you're not afraid to knock on doors and, and drive around the community to hunt them down, to have them engage in the process of learning and actually, you know, be a contributor to the society that, you know, they come from, I, I think they actually, you know, <laughs> open up to those people. So I think a knock around midnight just being, you know, familiar with the area, I think that has helped us out a lot. Uh, the west side of Chicago is almost like the south side of Chicago, um, but usually they don't allow anyone in the area unless they know who you are. And these people are from the area, so um, nine times out of ten, I say nine times out of ten because we have had people um, approach them and you know pull guns out on them when they're in the community if they don't know them. Uh, but nine times out of ten, they don't do that. I mean, they you know let the people go do what they have to do to engage our students. 
Man, that's intense. That's intense. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of respect for what you guys are dealing with out there. And it's so critical to reach out to these kids and make sure they stay connected. Um, we know, you know, we know from uh, uh, previous catastrophes um, that, you know, if, if, a, if a child misses a year of school, it can have a huge impact on the rest of their life. It can have a yes. long-term impact on their uh, earning capacity. Uh, you know, it, it can have a ripple effect. It can even have a multi-generational effect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not even a year. It's, yes. just, it's just like five or more absences can impact things, GPA and their future. I mean, it's there's some amazing statistics around just just missing even small amounts of school can have a huge impact. So what you're doing there early is is, is so so important. Um, what, what do you see? Give us a little. I know you don't have a um, crystal ball or anything, but share with us a little bit. I know you're someone who follows education really close. Share with us a little bit how you see um, the fall shaking out and, and some of the specific game planning you guys are doing for when um, school starts back up. So I think right now what we're doing, we're actually building like a family academic support team. Uh, we're doing PD around that. We're building um, capacity far as how to make uh, virtual education engaging. Because right now they're just using Google Hangouts and Google Class, but how do you make that really, you know, that that environment really engaging to have students show up and really want to participate in the process? And Christian, you know, just from building out the curriculum online virtually, you know, we have figured out some of the ways that we can do that to make it really um, fun and engaging. Almost, almost as a dog who's face-to-face with those students, we can do that same thing in uh, the environment, the, the the learning platform, the you know the the Google classrooms and Google Hangouts. So, so I think that's what we're doing right now. We have the students that uh, we will retain, which is about a hundred, about seventy-five percent of the students. We would do more training with those families over the the summertime to really have them understand what blended learning is. Because there probably be some opportunities after the first semester to have some face-to-face contact. But we want them to be able to be, you know, fluent and working and navigating the online system. Yeah, I want to I go back to something you mentioned a minute ago. And you mentioned making uh, the learning experience more engaging than just using, you know, Google Classroom and Google Hangouts. So if you were just to hand, you know, maybe just one or two real simple strategies to the educators who are listening to this podcast, what would you recommend that they do? Well, I always say WIFM, what's in it for me, right? The students already, they want to know what's in it for them. Uh, when my students been, you know, from, you know, 16 to 21, they all really want to work. And, you know, some we have to have four that want to go to college, right? But they want to make money. They want to know how they can actually uh, help the home front. So what we do, we advertise you know, we have our community partners like Coke. Um, we have some community partners with Reynolds Wrap and uh, Kellogg's that actually help our students with these uh, paid internships so they can develop skills. Uh, when the students see that they can actually work and also get credit for working, work-based learning, because a lot of skills we're looking at, they're learning in the work environment. So they can get a two-for-one. They can work, get paid, and get credit. Uh they really buy into that. And the way we get the students engaged, um, if they stay with us for the first two months, the research shows six to eight weeks, they can really have uh, a gist of what we're trying to do to buy into the curriculum and 
some of the programming that we're doing at the school, they're more likely to stay with us. And this is just from K-12. When I was working with K-12, we did a research on how to onboard and keep students, uh, retain the students throughout the year. And that's what we did. You know, part of that was actually providing jobs. Um, part of that was offering laptops for free. If you, you stay past eight weeks, you get to keep your laptop nice. and you keep it forever. So <laughs> that was like a big thing for the students. They wanted to know when I would get my laptop. They wanted to know when can I work, Mr. King. If, you know, I passed my eight weeks, could you place me on the field? So that is like a big motivator for our students. And again, you know, those students that have participated in work-based learning, you can see them transform over the years. It's just amazing to see them, you know, doing the schoolwork and also working in offsite uh, at these different companies. And they just totally change the way they look because they're building their self-esteem. You know, and not only that, you know, they get some kind of certificates uh, just going through the, 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 the onboarding programs that, you know, just say Coca-Cola. They have to go through a, a training and get certified to actually continue to work there. So um, that could be a lifelong career for some of our students. UPS, it can be a lifelong career for some of our students. That's and that's awesome. the reality. All of them are not going to go to college. All of them are not going to go to the military. But I think, you know, getting ahead of the curve, just, you know, placing them out in the field and having them get their feet wet before, you know, having them drop off and get high school diplomas and just send them on their way, uh, that doesn't work anymore. We have to actually build that into the school program. So one of the things I love about your approach early is it's almost like you're taking some of the best principles from organizational design and from the corporate world. And, you know, like, like how do you, how do you build in good incentive structures, right? And how, how do you identify key milestones and then get kids over those milestones? I mean, these are all very rich tactics that HR managers and people who work in organizational structures, they employ those tactics to try to, you know, max, maximize employee retention so that they can maximize profits for shareholders. But very few people are bringing some of those tactics into the education system. So how did you learn those principles and get inspired to bring those into the education system? Yeah, I think it started a long time ago. We always have to know uh, where the students are as far as their psyche. And what we do, we do like um, student satisfaction surveys every quarter. So we do it every uh, two months. Uh, students have the opportunity to actually tell us how we can do better with them and tell us what they want as far as our school programming and tell us what's really working. So I learned that a long time ago just to have them tell us what they want. So have a choice in education and have a choice in career and programs that they want it built into their, their school structure. So I think that is part of what really helped us out just to kind of know what the students want because it's just like you said it's they're the customers you you need to know exactly what they want to do and not just try to you know shove it down their throat so uh school uh student choice is like a big thing for us student choice and voice is a huge thing for us you know our student council they gather a lot of information from our student body um we have a, a anonymous dropbox uh, strategically placed throughout the school. We have like five of them throughout the school. They can just drop anything into that box anonymously and we can get that information to figure out what's going on. Good, bad, indifferent. We get the information and it helps us help us out throughout the year. 
Yeah, Earl, I love how you're giving, you know, these students a voice. You know, empowerment comes from being able to express yourself, to feel heard, and what you're doing to to empower those students and it is amazing. I love, you know, this concept. Make sure I heard this right. It's it's what's in it for me. Is that what you call that? Yeah, W I F M. Yeah, what's in it for me? For me. What's and, in it for me? Yeah, and I think that yeah. you're, you're bringing powerful, powerful relevancy to to these students. I think that in combination with, I know you guys have great academics and what you're doing with, um, you know, online learning and a blended approach and stuff. I think that's going to. Um, you're going to reach a lot of kids that wouldn't be reached. And it's an honor. But we've been blessed. We've got to give back. And you and me both know what rock bottom is. We know what it's like yes. to, to be mm -hmm. scared to death and, and have anxiety and, and worry about our families, worry about um, how we're going to survive. And um, if you guys only knew what it was like to be a kid in braces, you know, both my knees were knocked. So I had a crooked walk of stuttering and drooling. You know, people tripping me, you know, and spitting on me, making fun of me, you know, as a kid. Um, seeing, you know, my dad, you know, abuse my mom both verb verbally and physically. Um, and being the oldest male in the house, that one day had to rise up against him to protect his mom. Um, and that, you know, actually drove me to actually have a greater understanding of what a lot of our students are going through right now to this day. You know, one, um, you know, seeing a lot of domestic things go on, you know, be that uh, physical, uh, sexual, verbal, they, they see a lot. You know, they see a lot of domestic stuff going on, you know, people getting shot just like me, seeing people, um, friends get shot in the head right in front of me, you know, so those things don't leave you. Um, but I remember just figuring out, like, <laughs> when they, 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 I had a hit on my brother, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, Blackstone Ranger. You know, I remember, you know, Pran saying, you know, work for me. And I was slated to go off to medical school at that time. It just so happened, I never expected to go into education, but I realized once, you know, I was pushing this, this direction, um, while I was pushing the direction, I was, I asked if I can make a difference. And through all the, the, the trials and tribulations that I went through, I felt that I really get where our students are coming from, you know? And, you know, it's not just in the urban communities, you know, students everywhere are going through a lot of crazy things that we don't have the slightest idea they're going through. And yet they show up, they show up every day. And they're showing up just hoping that somebody can save them. Somebody can just jump in and, and, and help them get out the situation that they're in. So for me, it, it is about being resilient. It is about, you know, never giving up. You know, you get knocked down with the political stuff all the time in education. People tell you no, but you have to break through and, and incorporate these things that you know would help students. So I think that's a lot of stuff I, I talk about. I never... I uh, never talked about the fact that people told me no a lot, and yet I, I, I didn't stop. I still tried. If you, if I can't go this way, I'm going to go that way. <laughs> if I can't go that way, I'm going to go this way. And, and never stopping because I know why I was doing it. I made a promise. I made a promise that I would not give up, that, you know, I was built for this. And I'm going to do it until my dying day. I'm going to do whatever I can to be able to be there for students that, 
you know, there's some disenfranchised that's going through a lot of uh, trauma. I'm going to continue to be there in whatever capacity I can until I die. Well, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. You know, I know, I know a lot of educators that get into this business because they have a vision like you did. They have a desire to help and they're, I mean, they're national heroes. They should be paid. I've said this before. They should be paid double, triple, quadruple what they get, what they get paid right now for the kind of work and the kind of value they're adding to the economy. But you know, oftentimes as educators get into this and they get into the politics and the bureaucracy mm-hmm. and, you know, they just get kind of burned out and they get, you know, fatigued yeah. with you know what what do you do to keep yourself refreshed what do you do to keep the educators who work with you refreshed mm-hmm. and engaged and kind of hold on to that vision when it gets hard yeah so self-care is really important you know if you are not good and to yourself if you're not healthy yourself and whole you can't help anyone you can't help your team you can't help your students so for me i think you know working out uh, I work out at least four or five days a week. I told you I practice Aikido two or three times a week. You know, I do transcendental meditation twice a day. So I do a lot of things that actually help me keep center and sometimes sanity in order to go there and actually be there, show up for my, my team, show up for my students, who I also call my team. Um, you have to be healthy and whole and sound for the people that you're supporting. So if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. You know, so I see a lot of people why, uh, you know, the politics get in the way because emotionally they're unhealthy because of all the stuff they're going through internally. You know, so you got to find some way to release that, you know, day in, day out and just kind of, you know, reset and go back there and be fresh and ready to go the next day. So that, for me, it just doesn't stop, you know, Monday through Friday. It's something that I, you know, take care of throughout the week, uh, throughout, you know, the seven days of the week. And, you know, just like Christian said earlier, you know, I think, you know, the discipline came from earlier on just being in martial arts and you kind of have this routine of things you do. And now it's just a part of who you are. Um, so part of what we do in our school right now, we do quiet time. We teach our students meditation and how to center themselves in our homeroom advisory. So that's part of what we do as well as the SEO curriculum um, at the school. So I think when I first rolled it out to the team, <laughs> we did uh, TM and they were just really, really amazed some of the things that they felt, some sensations. I even had, um, uh, he's a police officer, he's Sergeant Gonzalez. He's our community partner. I had him participate in uh, that PD, and he was like, how can I get a hold of this? How can I do this with my team? It was, like, so, you know, breathtaking for him. He just was so wow after going through a 23-minute session with me doing Transcendental Meditation. You know, I have a lot of school administrators that listen to this podcast. If you wanted to share, I don't know, one or two things that you think going into the the next year that is the most important things for an administrator to focus on, what would that be? Yeah. So I I mentioned, you know, the the two, the non-academic and the non-academic supports. I think it's really going to be critical because of this big pandemic that's going on that has never, ever, ever happened in the history of life, I don't believe. Um, I think it is really key that you have some psychosocial, emotional supports. I know a lot of people are working on how they shift gears with the curriculum. 
I think that's really important in how to embed conversation, meaningful conversations in the curriculum uh, that support students. But I think it's really important that they have a team like an ACAM, a team like a social worker, uh, a counselor that's going to actually help the students um, with the support. And then I think the other thing, just like I, you know, kind of alluded to before, um, figure out really, you know, your population and what they're really looking for. Um, you know, some schools may have um, different things. You know, you are actually uh, a post-secondary school. You know, our school is called uh, College and Career. We have, you know, IT and coding. And that's based on our student survey. Believe it or not, a lot of students wanted to do something with um, 3D printing and, and, and robotics. So we embedded that in our program. So if you're marketing to your students or trying to figure out what your students really, really, really um, buy into, and you can get the most bang for your bucks for traction and engagement, um, I, I think we need to know what the students need to thrive in the environment. So for us, it's this... Um, career pathways. We have to have that in place with the caveat that, you know, we have 20, 27% of our students going into college and about 13 that's going into a, a military um, type of setting when they leave school. So we have all these different programs in place to address that. And how do you do that when most of the students are working off site? Right now, it's the time to gather all your community partners and actually create your linkage agreements to have all those things in place you know, when you start in August and September. I, I actually would like to take a, a trip back to your own personal story because what you bring is so unique and it has to come from your experiences. Uh, going back to about 2008, um, I, I worked in social services. And uh, at the time, um, you know, I actually, I was the director of a residential uh, treatment facility and also I helped, you know, start what they call the academy, a new school system within those residential settings. It's more like a therapeutic day school because I had that background earlier on in my life. And I remember they had some struggling programs, and uh, I was working two jobs. I was working 90 hours a week, 45 and one, and then overnight at another residential facility, uh, 45. And then the CEO of the program came to me, asked me, hey, you know, you know, I see what you have done with some of these programs. And I heard what you've done at, you know, the Jewish Children Bureau. Um, most definitely, I would like you to actually, you know, take on this challenge and turn around some of our programs that didn't work. It was like some of the highest profile programs, they thought that they can actually build into their programs. And the students and the, the residents, they were just running amok around the resident. And they were like, you know, breaking into offices and, I came up with a system to actually stabilize a few of their programs. And probably after five years, uh, the CEO kind of reneged on, you know, the promotion he had gave me and, you know, some of the, the compensation. And it kind of forced me to actually start to move on. And at the time, I was going to work for a K-12 school as a director of operation. And one of the guys, he was uh, one of the senior VPs. He interviewed me with the head of school. And the interview went so well, he took me from that head of school. It was a school called CBCS in Chicago, which was a K-12 school. But they were starting this dropout recovery program in Malcolm X College. You know, I did so well in that interview, he wanted me to actually start that school as the head of school. I'm like, 
You know, I have never been a principal. I helped build programs and I ran some therapeutic day schools. But as far as being a principal of a, a, a charter school or a public school, I've, not, I've never done that. But some of the stuff that I talk about in the residential setting, you know, as far as us building the academy and working with really, you know, tough students, they felt that I would be the, the best one. So I had to go through 10 interviews before K-12 really accepted me. Now, you can imagine that 10 interviews, most people would have just given up. Like, this is just a laborious process. So I just couldn't understand it. But to get in K-12 was really, really challenging. It's not easy for people, you know, to get into positions. So especially if you're launching a, a new school that they're banking on to get a lot of intel from and put a lot of money behind. So they, they trusted me, and I didn't want to let them down. And that was one of the most successful schools at K-12. It was one of the most successful schools at the Youth Connection Charter School. Um, and we took some of those best practices and scaled it across the country um, with K-12. So after three years uh, doing, you know, work at Malcolm X College with the dropout recovery, uh, 2012, I, I moved on to the corporate environment to help scale it among 17 other, you know, fully virtual schools we call at-risk uh, insight schools, um, and we built that. We call it a full-service school model. Um, some of the stuff that I'm talking about right now, uh, we had incorporated into those programs. So, and, you know, over the years, we see how important. I think, Dave, I told you at the beginning of the call, they didn't know anything about uh, social and emotional learning. Uh, <laughs> back when I first started, you know, scaling this within the K-12 environment, um, so, and a lot of people were cynics. They didn't think it would work. They didn't think that it would help engage our students and get them on better. And I, I told you, uh, Kristen Haas came out and did a, a training in Vegas that just kind of wow everyone. I mean, it just blew them out the water. And they were big believers after that. And after getting them, you know, really to buy in it and have a stake in it, uh, it really helped them out, not just from an academic standpoint, but from a retention standpoint, working at K-12 in that corporate environment and then coming back to the school. Uh, and I, I did mention, you know, we had a couple of students get shot like three months back into, um, you know, the three years I came back, the last three years, I had a student shoot another student on campus. And if I didn't have something like transcendental meditation or the ability to go and release that in a dojo, I don't know if I would have made it. I was actually questioning quitting. Um, like, what are you doing this for? Um, you know, you're still going to have, you know, blood in your hands. And it was really hard to see my student laying there dead, uh, shot and killed by another student. So, wow. you know, you have to have something that actually you can actually, you know, release it from your body, release it from your spirit and go at, go back in and really be a great support to your team and families. Uh, that that's got to be devastating. I did not know that you had recently seen. Um, how how long ago was that that you saw your own student? Um, yeah, that was three years ago when I came back into the school environment. Because I was doing the, the seventeen schools across the country. I was traveling, working with schools from you know Orange County, California, all the way to Newark, New Jersey. So I was always out visiting you know two or three schools. So I wasn't used to. The reality of what was going on in Chicago. So I kind of had my guards dropped <laughs> going into these other states and, you know, didn't really have it on my radar that another one of my students would shoot a, uh, another student. And you know, it was just a student that I seen the day before 
He, you know, had tattoos on his face and neck, but he was a student that always sought out attention from me. And he always wanted to show me his grades. Hey, Mr. King, you know, look what, I, you know, I got to be on my test. You know, he was one of those students that sought out for attention from men. And he was the kid that pulled the trigger on the other student and shot him in the head. So I would have never expected that from that student. Uh, but you, it just goes to show what they did inside the school environment was totally different from outside the school environment. And it happened on the school block, um, but still it was outside the school. That's heartbreaking. Um, I'm sorry. So it was pretty that. tough on me and the team. I mean, it was really tough on everyone, the other students in the school. Um, you know, the retention was low. Um, they were thinking about shutting down the school. It's just, it just totally caught me off guard. And, you know, I had to pull some of the stuff that I'm talking about, you know, as far as being resilient and, you know, understanding my why, uh, because I, I really questioned myself at that point in time and have to go to that parent and visit her at home and let her know what happened. It was just really hard. Um, and it was just hard. It was hard. I bet. Well, as, as we kind of wrap up here, if you have just one message you could share with the thousands of educators who are listening to this right now, as they're going through, you know, maybe not something quite as dramatic and extreme as seeing one of their own students shot, but maybe, maybe they, maybe they, maybe they are, but even just the, the trauma of going through COVID-19 and all of these things, what's the one thing that you would want to say to them? I know the work that we do is tough, but never, never, never give up. Um, this this work may not get the gratification at this point in time, but all the work that you put in every day, you know, 12, 13 hours to try to make sure that you provide quality education, um, you must not give up. Uh, you must break through and push through. At the end of the day, I mean, this moment in June that's coming up, we have 75 graduates, um, and I think that's what it's all about for me. All the stuff that we went through even before COVID-19, you know, it's tough. And this time of the year is really where you get to feel like everything is not in vain. So uh, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but, you know, we can't ever, ever, ever give up. Uh, never give up. I think the, the martial artist in you like it just seems like it weaves its way through your entire way of being. I mean, talking to you is just like looking at a calm, blue, tranquil ocean. <laughs> Maybe if we could do Aikido, if we put on hazmat suits, you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, thanks, early. Thanks for taking the time today. Really appreciate yeah. it, man. And we'll be in touch, man. You got it. Thank you. Hey, you're the Bye. Best. Thanks. Bye.